Well, Todd, we're back, and uh, we were just getting into your uh, story about becoming a funeral home owner in Iowa, and uh, I think I'm, I'm really excited to hear your business prowess. Well, Rob, I want to apologize to your listeners because I'm over here. It wasn't funny when it was happening, but looking back at it, it was how how reckless was I, how unbridled was I. Um, my, my, um, my, my ego was, um, unbridled. Uh, I had hardly any maturity about myself. Um, and, uh, I ended up with this funeral home, two of them. And there were, they, they did 50 calls a year. So this is in 1975. And in 1975, you 50 calls a year. We had absolutely no cremation at all. None, 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 none. And you could do well. You could do well. And and if anybody but other than me had been there, they probably would have done well. All right. But I had it in my head that I was going to really go after the competitor, which I'm ashamed to say that. But I, I, but you know, I'll take the risk of the of, of of that because the competitor, they were decent human beings. They were. Uh, their family had been in the funeral profession, um, hell, much longer than anybody that was connected with the funeral home. Uh, I bought, and um, I, I feel I feel ashamed of that at times. Now we were both running the ambulance at the time, um, and so I decided. Uh, that I was going to make that funeral home the finest funeral home on earth. Not, not, not in Iowa, not, not in Benton County, in, in, on earth. I was going to um, do everything that I could. So th that translated today, right, in spending money, right? That's trans. So I gave you an example. The guy I bought the funeral home from, he bought it from a guy named Burl Peffers. And Burl uh, was this kind of funeral director that if, uh, if the uh, sales people, if the vendors were having a bad week, they knew if they stopped at Burl Peffers' place, he'd buy something from them. Even if it was just a tro car tip and a lip brush right? He'd, he'd buy something from you. So, so we're doing 50 calls a year, 30, 30 a year out of the big building and 20 a year out of the branch, seven, nine miles away. And Rob, this is not uncommon in these little Iowa funeral homes. I grossed more money and netted more profit out of the building doing 20 calls a year than I did in the one doing 30. Right, because the one doing 20, it was rich farmland. I mean, this was good farm country over there. And you get nine miles into where we're at, there were two funeral homes. It was a bit little bigger community and there wasn't all this connection. So I just started buying stuff. Um, and I wish, I wish I'd had um, a mentor uh, I think one of the causes of this, of my uh, business uh, failure, 
was that I, I didn't have a mentor. Well, and then let me add an addendum to it. I was so arrogant and so full of myself back then, I probably would, I wouldn't have listened to the mentor. I would not have listened to anybody that would pull me aside and say, give it another couple of years, right? You don't have to buy this funeral home. In fact, you're not even the total owner of the funeral home, right? You're only half owner of this funeral home, right? It's doing 50 calls a year. Come on, what do you, you know, I wouldn't have listened to that even if somebody had said that. So the first thing I did that was a bonehead move in spending money was I bought a new ambulance because up until that time, the ambulances in our town, both funeral homes had station wagon ambulances, right? They weren't ambulance ambulances. They were station wagons with a red light on them and it was load and go and off you go. So I thought that I would, um, I would show that competitor, I'd show them up and I bought this big damn Cadillac, red and white ambulance is a remember is this yeah. i i remember a photograph of you in front of an ambulance that said van beck on it is this the ambulance you're talking about that's that, that's that's it that's it okay, it sure so it sure looked good todd I, oh yeah 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 and and you know we looked good it wasn't paid for but it looked good right and i had uh, three or four people in town that helped me with the ambulance and we were doing the same thing as we always did, car accidents, uh, farm accidents, you know, farmers getting caught in a power takeoff, uh, farmers going through a corn picker, farmers going through a hay baler. I mean, you know, just these accidents were just all over the place. And so then I decided that I was going to put out, uh, display the finest looking dead bodies that city's ever seen. Now, I'm telling you this because Burl Peffers would buy a case of fluid from every salesperson that stopped by the funeral home, all right? The problem is, is that Burl was only doing 50 calls a year and he had 14 cases of fluid downstairs, right? So the fluid was so old, you know what it does when it precipitates, right? when the formaldehyde gas goes out of the bottle, the, it goes from a full bottle down to, to, you know, it loses two ounces of fluid. Well, most of our fluid was that way. The guy that I bought the funeral home from, whose daughter was the French connection in central Iowa, right? He hadn't bought a case of fluid in 10 years. He had, he had enough embalming fluid that he used that same fluid for 10 years and it worked it still worked now i was mortified when i found out that he was using embalming fluid that was 10 years old now i got to be candid with you i would that would not upset me in the least today to use fluid that's old right because the body's firmed up the body's cleared out the fluid was still potent 
right? It was, you know, we're not shipping bodies to Mexico. We're not shipping bodies internationally. But I remember, I, I don't, I, I hope I'm not uh, t shooting myself in the foot here. I remember I decided I was going to dump all that embalming fluid. I was going to dump it, right? And I, it was glass bottles, right? Still, still glass bottles. And I remember one Saturday I decided I, <laughs> I was going to dump this embalming fluid. And I went down to the basement, their big drain where we wash the cars. And I got, I got a, 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 a case of fluid and I started dumping embalming fluid, pouring out 16 ounce bottles, or well, 14 ounce bottles now, see. And you know, Rob, Jesus, that lasted about half an hour, right? Because the fumes of pouring that straight embalming fluid. And so I turned the hose on, tried to dilute it, and hell, that didn't work. And then I picked up a case of cavity fluid and I think I got four bottles dumped and I, I had to just leave the whole basement, right? Because I mean, every, every piece of vermin and spider in that basement was going to be killed because I had just, I had just fumigated the entire damn basement. So I did that kind of stuff. I don't know why I did. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you another one. I bought a first aid kit. <laughs> I bought a first aid kit for the ambulance, a new one. Oh man, I think the thing cost like 300 bucks, right? In 1975. And I, I remember I was uh, waxing the ambulance because I, I, I like that. I like that idea of pulling the ambulance out front in the front of the funeral home, shiny, perfect with the doors open. I had, I had him disconnect the lights so I could leave the doors open so people drive by and the message was Van Beck is ready at the instant every hour of the 24 to go on the call, right? I mean, hell, the reality is sometimes I had to wait 20 minutes for somebody to come up and help me on an ambulance call. But I remember I waxed that ambulance. Jeez, it looked great, right? Looked good. And I went to back it up in the garage. And I ran over the damn new first aid kit. I had set, I had set the first aid kit in the back of the ambulance, and I forgot I did. I ran over the damn. <laughs> I just smashed it to smithereens. Okay, so I I bought way too much for the embalming. I bought a new embalming machine. I didn't need to do that. The old porter boy was working just fine. I bought instruments. I didn't need to do that. Um, and and the other side is is that I didn't. I had. I did not have a clue, honest to God, on how to price a funeral. I, I I'll tell you another one. This is shameful. I joined Federated. Charlie Levette, who's a wonderful man, was my Federated rep. And Charlie Levette came in, and Federated had this slide rule thing on pricing caskets and stuff. And um, I, I, I absolutely, uh, well, are you a licensed funeral director? Did you graduate from mortuary school? No. Well, then I'm not listening to you. I mean, I'm paying them. I'm paying them 200 bucks a month to do my books and to tell me how to do things. But geez, you, you didn't graduate. Here's one, like they talked about all this stuff in mortuary school, right? And so the... 
the funerals were well done. I'm I'm happy to say. Uh, we in we we took the business from um, from 50 calls a year. The biggest year I had was 66, and we're still losing money. Um, I refused to look at bank statements. Um, I was um, absolutely uh, exclusive in my thinking of how wonderful I was. Um, and so I became chairman of the Bicentennial Commission in our town and I got involved. I went through the Masonic Lodge. I got, I, I joined both Rotary and Lions, which was unheard of. Um, I tried to join the fire department, but they, they blackballed me there. By that time, I think some of them been figuring out that uh, I was a lot of talk and that I was uh, trying to shake the tree and it wasn't needed to be shaken. Um, <clears throat> so I owned that funeral home for, um, for four and a half years. And it's one of the most uh, shameful times of my career. Of course, it happened um, 40, 44 years ago that it went down. And um, so it's a lesson um, and it made me a better funeral manager, right? Because I am always now on pins and needles about money and, and expenses and profit and, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and basing your cost on your expenses, right? Ba basing your non-declinables on what is this actually costing you? Um, and so I, share that with a good heart because it's ancient history but it was a very humbling humbling experience rob very very much so but then todd how did how did everything ahead. wind up then like did did you close the door did you sell the property no 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 it went back to the former owner uh he was in arizona he got it back and they sold it again all right so what they did was we filed bankruptcy, but there was a light at the tunnel here a little bit on this, right? Um, because uh, the funeral home got sold to a fellow in Vinton, Iowa, right? Uh, good guy, good friend of mine. But then he got involved with Wilbur Vault as an executive in Iowa. He sold it to the competitor in Vinton, Iowa, and they held on to it. And then, no, let me rephrase that. Hold on, hold on. He sold it to Bruce Overton. And some of your listeners will remember Bruce Overton was the president of the National Funeral Directors Convention. And I have to say a word about Bruce Overton. He died way too young. He was in his 60s of pancreatic cancer. He was a decent man, good guy. And I remember an NFDA convention I went to. I was so humiliated by what had happened. And I was so uh, insecure to do anything in Iowa uh, with anybody because I knew everybody, you know, how the hell are you going to keep that quiet, right? Right, you know, because this is a very ancestral profession, right? 
And so I remember I came in, I was doing a seminar for NFDA. And I came in the ballroom, Bruce Overton standing there. And I went over to him. And he, he owned the funeral home now, these two that I lost. And I, I was obviously, obviously, the look on my face must have betrayed my insecurities and my fear of seeing him. And he came over and he introduced himself. And he said, uh, I said, I, I, I'm so humiliated about what happened. And he said, you got to let that go. He said, you were a young man. You did the best you could, which maybe was an exaggeration. Um, and he was very gracious to me. Another guy that was gracious was a man named Cal Van Arkel from Oskaloosa, Iowa. I ran into Cal at a convention and I was just absolutely terrified to meet Iowa funeral directors, right? Because I knew, I knew how wicked some funeral directors could be with gossip and their unkind remarks about people that screw up, right? And make bonehead mistakes like I did. And Cal Van Arkel, you know, he, he was a gracious man and said how, how, how much it took to get over this. And he uh, said, uh, you know, you're being too hard on yourself. And, and by that time now, by that time, my career had gone in the direction of writing and speaking, All right? By that time, my career had become uh, not, I would say, much more visible than what it was leading up to the bankruptcy. And Cal Van Arkel said, now, if that funeral home had worked, he said, you'd, you'd still be doing 50 to 60 calls a year and you wouldn't have had the experiences in life that you've had because I just fell into this kind of speaking, writing thing. And so I do look back at that and I think there was some truth to what he said, but he was more objective about it than I was. You know, humiliation is a very negative experience. Uh, it clouds your judgment, it clouds your trust, it clouds your ability to feel good about yourself, um, and and I and I have no one to blame uh, but myself. And there have been times I almost begin to laugh at how ridiculous it was that I went through all that and I didn't even own the whole damn funeral home. Right? I didn't I didn't own the whole thing. Now the doctor was a silent partner, right? So he had he had nothing to say. Um, about how the thing was operated, but hell, he probably should have had something to say, right? Because I certainly was, um, I knew how to do a funeral, but I didn't know how to run the business. So, but the good news now is that from that, I ended up with John B. Turner in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And that should be maybe our next uh, segment uh, as we conclude this portion. Go ahead, Rob. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just didn't want to let you go without asking what was the final word with the doctor and how did this uh, experience affect the relationship with your father? Well, well, the doctor was gracious. He was. He never uh, spoke to me again. 
his wife never spoke to me again, which uh, good reason. Um, my father, uh, it was, I believe, one, one more piece of evidence um, in the indictment that Todd Van Beck is uh, uh, doofus, that Todd Van Beck, you know, geez, what are we going to do with him, right? What are we going to do with him? And, you know, so, yes, I was, um, you know, I felt horrible about it. Now, one thing, though, and I'll pass this on, when, and we'll talk about this when we get into Cedar Rapids. When, when I got the job at Turner's, and I, there's a whole story behind that, which I think your listeners might find interesting, I ended up going to Mount Mercy College as a student because I wanted to get my bachelor's degree because Dr. Jackson had already told me that I should be teaching instead of going to seminars. And that was, I shared in a sub in another episode. So I signed up at Mount Mercy College, little run by the Sisters of Mercy up on the Mount in Cedar Rapids, nice little school. And I had a, a, a teacher, a professor named Sister Pauline Fox. And I was at my wit's end about this bankruptcy stuff, had a job, but I was humiliated. I mean, I couldn't look the vault men in the eye. I couldn't look, you know, cause I was th only 40 miles now from where I've gone bankrupt. So I saw a lot of the same people at Turner's as I, and I would see the Wilbert vault guy and, and he was furious with me, right? I'd see the Brenner casket guy. Oh my God, they just glare at me, right? when I, when they'd come in, right? You know, what a loser, right? But I remember going, I signed up for this course on American literature and Sister Pauline Fox was the professor. And oh my God, the first book that she assigned us was The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I thought, oh my Lord, All right? I read the first chapter, The Prison Door, uh, and I thought, oh my God, I'm, you know, this is the worst thing I've ever read in my life. This is worse than chemistry, except, and, uh, and then pa Sister Pauline got up and started talking about what Nathaniel Hawthorne was really talking about. Now, I'll, I'll abbreviate this because I know time's short. At the end of the book, remember, the story is that the Hester Prynne gets pregnant out of wedlock and the community brands her as an adulteress and they make her wear a scarlet letter on her bosom for adulteress. Now I have to say this now, when I'm reading this and Pauline, uh, Sister Pauline's explaining this, all of a sudden it dawned on me, I, hell I'm wearing a scarlet letter. Right? I've been branded as a failure. I've been branded as a loser by a lot of people, including members of my family. So when she started in on this, and then as the book progressed, I'm sitting there looking at her. And at the end of it, the last chapter is Pre Hester Prynne stays the course 
She has a mission in her life. She's found her purpose in life. And by the time she's an old lady, everybody that called her an adulterer is dead. And the new people in town think the A that she's still wearing means angel. And by God, I'll tell you, Rob, that struck me in the head like a ton of bricks. All right, so fast forward this about six years ago. Sister Pauline Fox, I, I wrote to her throughout my career. I would send her letters. This little nun at Mount Mercy in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, she'd send me letters back and she'd have red marks on correcting my grammar and she'd go down through the whole thing, right? She'd always say, I hope you don't mind me doing this. Of course not, sister, right? You're a nun, right? I don't mind you doing and she died, right? And so is this crazy how life goes? I sent a letter to Mount Mercy College telling whoever would read the letter. I sent it to the president of Mount Mercy College, whoever would read the letter about Sister Pauline and about what a mental state I was in when I became her student. The president of Mount Mercy College had been the superintendent of the school system in the town when I went bankrupt. The same guy. 40 years later, he picks up this letter and I'm pouring my heart out to this nun or her, to her family or to anybody there that would listen to me about her, about she salvaged my mental health when I was her student. He sent the letter and, and, and he called me. His name was Norm Nielsen. And he called me. It was a touching moment because it kind of, it kind of lifted still my feeling of how bungling I'd been. And I tried so hard in my career to make amends for that and atone for that. And he sent the letter to Sister Pauline's sister, her biological sister. And the sister sent me a letter and said, you need to know that Sister Pauline was praying for you through all of this. It was one of the most precious correspondences I've ever had in my life. I tell you that because losers can be in disguise, right? If you, if you run into uh, the uh, the obstacles. If you just persevere with it, uh, it 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 works itself out in time. Wow, you know, Todd. Again, more unexpected stories that uh, you know I haven't heard that you know the depth of that story before, and and just how you go from impactful relationship to another one that decades later continues to have meaning and positive outcomes. And I think the more I hear about these, I think it's a great decision that we made to get these recorded and hopefully they can then be passed on to other people who, who maybe avoid some landmines that you didn't. Well, thank and, you for the opportunity. Yeah, Rob. no, this is, this is great. And we'll, uh, I'll look forward to the Cedar Rapids and, and Turner and, and that, but thanks again for sharing Todd. This is touching. All right. Thank you.